John says, and we know that whoever is born of God does not sin, but he who has been born of God keeps himself, and the wicked one does not touch him. We know that we are of God, and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. And we know that the Son of God has come and given us an understanding, that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Amen. And Father, we ask as we conclude this study through the book of 1 John together, Lord, as we see that last word, amen, let it be so. We just pray that all the wonderful truths your spirit has spoken to us through the word of God would just, Lord, come together as we look at this last section of the letter this morning. We ask, prepare us each individually, and Lord, we pray you would speak to us just supernaturally by the power of your Holy Spirit, that your spirit would now be our teacher and the one who speaks through us through what your spirit has already spoken in these written words in the word of God. Bless this time, Lord, we ask. We pray in Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, knowledge can indeed be a very empowering thing, I think, in any area of life, whether it's some pursuit that you're endeavoring in or trying to figure something out, knowledge indeed and knowing what is true is a very empowering and a helpful thing. And it can help us to navigate best. It can protect us from errors and things like that as well. And that reality is true spiritually also. When it comes to the spiritual life, knowledge of truth is incredibly empowering. In fact, Jesus himself emphasized that spiritual knowledge is liberating, that it delivers us from things. Jesus in John's gospel said, you shall know the truth and the truth will make you free or set you free. Knowing the truth brings deliverance from all kinds of things. And as John concludes his letter now, He again indicates more things that it is important for us to know. And we're going to see as he finishes up this letter here in order to help us have a real experience with God and a healthy relationship with God. And that's kind of been the heart behind the aged apostles writing that we've been looking at. Some of what he says here in our verses we'll notice is very repetitious. He again has no problem restating truths to kind of fasten them down in our lives, saying things that he's already spoken about and things we've already learned about. And then a few of the other things we'll see as well are just further insights that we might know what's true spiritually to be empowered to live for God in the most healthy way possible. Notice with me in verse 18, as John begins our verses here, he says, verse 18, we know that whoever is born of God does not sin. So John here reiterates a truth that he has already emphasized multiple times in this letter before. He's mentioned this same truth in prior sections of the book, and that truth is basically this, that the genuine spiritual child of God, someone who is genuinely a child of God from the Bible's perspective, is not going to live in a continual practice of sin. 
John has said before, and John is saying again, the child of God will not live in a continual practice of sin. Look at our verse here. He says, whoever is born of God. Now, he's identifying again this very select group. This is a title that John has used for the Christian numerous times in this letter. Those who are born of God, who have been and are born spiritually by God. Many times he has identified the Christian with that term. And that's important because only one who has had a spiritual birth experience by receiving Jesus Christ as their personal Savior and Lord, who has been born supernaturally from above, born from God, the Bible says is a genuine child of God. Remember, we've talked about it before, but for sake of reiterating it, in John chapter 3, Jesus himself was the one who indicated that. And John, no doubt, is just taking what he's already learned from the Lord himself, who was God in the flesh. And in John chapter 3, remember, Jesus is there having a conversation with a very religious, we might say, man. Nicodemus, someone who read Bible passages, he attended synagogue worship, he prayed prayers, he hung around and congregated with God's people, and yet Nicodemus sensed something was still missing inside of him. And so remember, he comes to Jesus at night, and he's sensing something, something's still missing. I'm doing spiritual routines. I'm involved in religious activities, but something's still missing inside, to which Jesus, we know, said this in John chapter 3, very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. And remember, Nicodemus said, born again? I don't understand this. Do you expect me to enter my mother's womb into a second time? He was thinking about physical birth, and Jesus was, of course, trying to use an analogy to help him to understand to where Jesus then said, Nicodemus, flesh gives birth to flesh, and the spirit, the spirit of God, gives birth to that which is spiritual. Don't marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. In other words, Nicodemus, that's, that's the only way someone experiences physical life in this physical fleshly realm. Flesh gives birth to flesh. There's a physical birth experience, and that is how physical life is experienced upon the earth. But he said in the same way, there is a kingdom of God. There's a spiritual realm, an eternal realm. And the only way to experience that realm, to see that realm truly, to ultimately see that realm literally, to depart from this life and enter into the realm that's spiritual, is he says, you must be born again. You have to have a spiritual birth. You have to have a spiritual experience where you are born and you come alive spiritually. It's not there automatically. The Bible teaches that. First John chapter 5, he said earlier in this chapter, whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ, that is the Savior, is born of God. So it's upon properly believing that I am a sinner and recognizing that I am spiritually dead, I'm separated from God, that as I don't start out physical life with a spiritual experience and relationship with God because that was lost in the Garden of Eden. Adam lost that for humanity. That's why he went from walking with God to hiding from God because sin brought spiritual death inside of him, and he lost that experience. That needs to be restored through a spiritual birth after our physical birth, and it's upon believing that and then understanding who Jesus is, 
that he is the son of God who lived a sinless life in a body of flesh as a man, fulfilling what we can as human beings, and that Jesus then stepped into our place and died sacrificially as a substitute. As he suffered and died upon the cross, taking the punishment for the guilt of our sins, in our place as a man, being fully God and fully man, he was reconciling divinity and humanity, giving the opportunity for that to happen. And as we understand that reality about our sinful condition and that Christ alone is the Savior that was sent, the promised deliverer that God sent to spare mankind, the Bible says when we believe those things and receive Christ as Savior, that is how we are then born of God. That's how that spiritual birth experience happens. Colossians 1 says we're delivered from the power of darkness and that kingdom, and we are brought into the kingdom of the Son of God, and we're brought in to a different spiritual family. So he says, whoever is born of God, that person who's gone from a prior condition, being born of Adam, spiritually dead, separated from God, the Bible literally teaches, and we'll talk about this more, being under the spiritual control of the only other spiritual father, which is the devil, and having been rescued from that spiritual condition and family and brought into the family of God by accepting Jesus, the Holy Spirit enters inside of us and we come alive spiritually. We then become a child of God, liberated from the devil's control and empowered by God living inside of us and now being our spiritual father. Second Peter chapter 1 describes it this way. It says, by his divine power, God has given us everything we need for a godly life. We've received all this by coming to know him, the one who called us to himself by means of his marvelous glory and excellence. And because of his glory, he has given us great and precious promises. These are the promises that enable you, as the Christian, to share in his divine nature and to escape the world's corruption caused by human desires. See, it's as we're born again, the spirit of God comes inside of our life. God takes residence within us by his spirit and he gives us the divine nature within. And just like a child, DNA-wise reflects the nature, the physical attributes, the temperaments of a parent genetically, the same is true spiritually. When you become a child of God, the spiritual DNA of God the Father is imparted into you by the Spirit of God coming to dwell inside of us. And that is why John states here for us in verse 18, look at it. He says, this is why we know that whoever has been born of God does not sin. And again, that term there is in the present tense, does not continuously participate in sin. John told us back in chapter 1 that even a Christian still fails periodically, and we're lying if we try and dismiss that reality, and that's why we look to Jesus, and we confess our sins, and he's faithful and just to forgive us of our trespasses and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So the child of God is going to periodically fail, but the child of God, John has been teaching and the scripture teaches, the child of God does not live in a habitual practice of ongoing sin. When someone has been born of God, they will not continuously indulge a sinful behavior. One translation of the sex section, the same section renders it this way. God's children do not make a practice of sinning. Another translation says they do not continue on 
to sin. Certainly, we still err. We fail at times. We may give in to temptation, but the Bible is very clear. God's child won't live in an ongoing practice of sin without turning from it. John said back in the third chapter of this same letter, no one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in them. They cannot go on sinning because they've been born of God. See, as God's spirit comes inside of us, the seed of God's spirit, if you would, spiritually, what is the spirit of God referred to in the scripture? The Holy Spirit. That should give it away right there. The Holy Spirit entered inside of me. So when I have been born of God and his spirit enters inside of me, it is the Holy Spirit of God that enters inside of me, and therefore the Holy Spirit, Jesus called him the Spirit of truth dwelling within God's child, won't allow us to continually practice unholy living. He will constantly be working within us to produce holy living and godliness to greater and greater degrees, and he will convict us when we do what's sinful and unholy. And he will empower us to repent and to change and to live differently. The presence of the Spirit working inside of us grants this blessed, powerful, spiritual preservation within the life of the child of God to preserve us from sin and the world and from Satan. That's why John says here in verse 18, whoever is born of God does not sin. Look as he goes on. But he who has been born of God, he says, keeps himself and the wicked one does not touch him. So notice the child of God is powerfully preserved by the presence and the work of the Holy Spirit within us in such a way that he protects and preserves us from sin's power and worldly influences. That's what John is saying when he says, he who has been born of God keeps himself. There is this keeping power that the Spirit of God works inside of the child of God as he influences me and directs you and enables us to keep our spiritual life healthy, that we might live in healthy relationship with God the Father, an appropriate relationship with Jesus, our spiritual husband. If we yield to the work of God inside of us, there will be a keeping power that he is orchestrating within us that will cause us to want to protect ourselves from harmful spiritual things, that we will want to keep ourselves pure and keep ourselves from being polluted by sin and polluted by worldly influences. First Timothy 5, the Holy Spirit says there, keep yourself pure. James writing under the inspiration of the Spirit tells the Christian, keep oneself unspotted from the world. So again, the spirit working inside of me and you is always going to be prompting us to keep ourselves from things that would defile us, things in the world that are filthy and inappropriate, things that are sinful that we know we shouldn't be in, engaging in. The spirit of God's going to be working inside of me to make me want to keep myself pure to keep my life pure and to live properly. Jude tells us as well there, keep yourself in the love of God. So the one who's born of God keeps himself not only pure from sin and, and from being defiled by the world, but the Spirit of God also works in us that we keep ourselves in close relationship with God. He's directing me and guiding you to keep ourselves in the love of God that is in close loving relationship with God. 
that that would be something we are continually doing, seek to stay strong in the Lord. So as the Spirit works inside of us, we find this powerful work of preservation prompting us to want to keep ourselves in right relationship with God, to keep ourselves from sinful things, to keep ourselves from worldly and ungodly influences. You know, some translations even render verse 18 here as a reference to the keeping power of the Lord himself. And some translations seem to take the original Greek text as a reference to the keeping power of the Son of God himself, the one begotten or born of God, referring to Jesus, who works powerfully within us to keep us and protect us secure. And certainly that is a spiritual truth as well. There is the reality of the keeping power of our Lord to protect us by his presence in our life. And he alone can keep us from being overcome by sin as we're united together with him and he's working in us in this way to keep us spiritually healthy and strong. If you read Romans 6, 7, and 8, that's what that's all about. That because we've been united together with Christ, we no longer let sin have dominion over us. But we now walk in newness of life as we live together with Jesus and in his power. As Paul was frustrated with his own flesh there, remember in Romans chapter 7, Paul says, Oh, wretched man that I am. And Paul says, The things I don't want to do, I keep doing those things. And the things that I do want to do, those are the things I don't do wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this sinful body that I have to be trapped in with this new spiritual love for God within me? And then Paul says what? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul doesn't say what will deliver me from this problem. He says who? Who will deliver me? And Paul realized it was Jesus the keeping power of Jesus helping him. And Jesus indeed does have a very wonderful presence within us, keeping us by his presence, helping us. Jude alludes to the same thing where he says of Jesus, he is able to keep you and I from stumbling and present you faultless before God's throne. Isn't that a wonderful thing to know that Jesus being at work within you can keep you from stumbling, from failing, from making mistakes and regrets. And it says, and he can present us one day faultless before the throne of God. Now that's impressive because I know I'm a faulty person. <laughs> to think that one day Jesus by his blood and righteousness is gonna present us faultless. Think about that. You know who you are. He's gonna present you, here is my faultless, pure, clean virgin bride, Father. He's going to present you faultless. That's an amazing thing. Jesus ensures that keeping power. Jesus, you might say, is committed to keeping the spiritual marriage together. And he's not going to let anybody separate you from that relationship you have with him. John chapter 10, Jesus says there emphatically, I give them eternal life and they shall never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. What a wonderful encouragement of the eternal and spiritual security that Jesus conveys. I give them eternal life, and nobody's going to take them out of my hand. Often we think we're holding the hand of the Lord. He's holding our hand. You know, we all know that. You go taking your child and walking across a busy street, and you say, hold my hand. You're not really counting on them to hold your hand. You're holding their hand. And certainly we take the hand of the Lord, but ultimately he has got a hold of our hand and he's going to walk us 
into eternity, and that's our great assurance. So we're keeping ourselves as the Spirit works inside of us. Jesus is keeping us as well by his power and presence within. What a wonderful preservation from sin there is. But John also alludes to how the presence of God's Spirit in the child of God, the one born again, is also working powerful preservation to protect us as well. Notice he says the end of verse 18, to protect us from Satan himself and all of his attacks. He says that he is the one who keeps us in such a way where the wicked one, a title he's used of the devil or Satan many times, does not touch him. And, and the language here is interesting when he says he does not touch him. The Greek literally is a very strong phrase that means to take hold of or take control over a person to bring destructive harm in their life. So he's not just talking about the devil poking you in the eye. The devil just poking you like a... He's talking about the devil getting a hold of your life as a child of God and trying to bring absolute ruin and wreak havoc. And he says, let me assure you of something. If you're born of God and God's your father, God ain't letting nobody mess with his kids. Any human father understands that, right? You're going to do anything you can to intervene and to protect your children. Well, imagine the father God is. God's not going to let the devil and his demons and his little bullying efforts do anything to bring destructive harm in the life of a child of God. God is going to protect us. God's going to shield us. We have a good father. The Bible says that he who's in us is greater than he who's in the world. My translation of that is our father can whip the world's father. He's much stronger. My dad can whoop your dad easily. The devil is no match for God. He's not God's equal. It's not like Batman and Robin or whatever the arch enemies are of superheroes. There's God and there's everything that's been created by God. The devil is not equal in his power to God. God the Father protects us. He can shield us and then add into that, the Bible teaches Jesus is our groom or our husband. What husband is going to let anyone interfere and harm or do anything to his bride, right? There's that protectiveness. He's going to do everything he can to shield and to take care of her and to keep her secure. And again, this is the idea. We have God, our Father, protecting us as his children. We have Jesus, our groom, our husband, protecting us as his bride. And he says, because of that, the wicked one, the devil or Satan, cannot touch us. He can't bring harmful destruction into our lives. We are under God's protective care. And that's a wonderful assurance to know. That's a very empowering and a very freeing thing to know that any access the devil has into my life as a Christian or to come against your life as a child of God to distract or to attack or to hassle us, it is only by God's allowance and in a measured way. Right? The book of Job teaches this. We saw this on our Wednesday evening going through the, the Old Testament a ways back when we went through Job, where remember, Job, this godly man, was someone God was so proud of, but for whatever heaven's reason was, God allowed Satan to have access because God wanted to prove the commitment that he saw and knew was in the heart of Job. And, but in that situation, remember, the devil had to get allowance to have any access to Job. 
He had to have permission from God to do anything to hassle or to bother or even to bring hurt into Job's life. It was only by God's permissible allowance. And it's so important for us to recognize that. God may allow his servants to be tested. He does let us be battle-hardened, and there is spiritual warfare. And the Bible teaches that, that we will go through spiritual battles. But how wonderful to know that we're under the protective care of Almighty God, that the Father is shielding us, the Son is preserving and protecting us, and there is powerful preservation over our lives and our souls. And folks, let me just say this morning to those of you who clearly are children of God, that's really great news. You read Job chapter 1 and 2, the devil is a maniac. When God gave him a little bit of room, look at the havoc he brought into Job's life. I mean, the devil's a maniac. Jesus, speaking of the devil, said, here's his agenda. He wants to rob, kill, and destroy. Peter said of him, he's like a roaring lion looking for people to devour. That's the devil's agenda. I'm really glad I'm a child of God now. I'm really glad that there's a degree of protection and preservation spiritually through being in a relationship with God through Jesus to keep me safe and secure. And we can live with that sense of security and peace that the Lord is with us. And look, this morning, I pray that encourages you because perhaps you've been enduring some trying times recently. Maybe you've been in, enduring some hardships. Maybe you've been facing an attack. Maybe you've been embattled in something. Perhaps you're growing battle-weary. Maybe you're feeling a little overwhelmed or overcome or like you're defeated or losing ground. Can I say this morning, be encouraged because the Father and the Son are on your side. Right? Romans chapter 8 says to us, if God before us, and the implication is he is for us, since God before us, who can be against us? And the idea there is, who can be against us successfully? It doesn't mean things don't come against us, but who can be against us successfully when standing behind us is our big brother Jesus and standing in front of us is our Father in heaven? So losing battle. If God's for us, there's a tremendous degree of security. Yes, we live in a broken world. There's an anti-Christian attitude. What's the key? Just keep close to Jesus. Just keep yourself in close relationship with God. He will prosper and protect you despite what comes against you. Romans 8 says we may be like sheep for slaughter all day long, but the wonderful thing is that we can become more than conquerors through him who loved us. And nothing's going to separate you from the love of God and the protection of God keeping and preserving our lives. That's a very encouraging and empowering thing to know that protection is available. Why is that so important? Well, verse 19, he goes on to say, we know that we are of God, but the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked ones. So John wants us to know that we live in a fallen world and to never forget this. And this is essential as well as empowering to know that we live in a fallen world, but the Bible says we're no longer part of that fallen world system. We've been taken out of that and are now citizens of the kingdom of God. He says here in verse 19, we know that the whole world, and there when he speaks of the world, as John has before, he's speaking of the broken system of the unsaved world. The world system of humanity who predominantly has rejected God. 
who doesn't want to live in accordance with God's ways, who has rebelled against God in their sinful and selfish living and has cast God aside. He says that whole world system, look what he says, is under the sway, your Bible may say the control, the direction of the wicked one, that is the devil. So the world system, which refers to the ideas of man, the viewpoints of humanity in the unsaved world, the standards of this present world, the ideals of the system of this world, its patterns and ways of operating, those things, the Bible say, are not only a broken system that's defiled by sin, but notice John takes it up a notch and he says, it's just not a broken, defiled system by sin. It's actually satanically controlled. Don't miss that. John says, it's not just polluted by sin. That'd be bad enough. He says, the whole world is actually being divinely directed in a spiritual, supernatural sense by the devil's power influencing everything in it, controlling it, swaying it, guiding it. You know, in Genesis chapter 2, God originally, remember, told Adam, told mankind to rule over the world and to subdue it. And when the devil convinced Adam and Eve to disobey God and God's authority and role in their life and instead to follow him, giving them directives and guidance, part of the fall of humanity, unfortunately, and mankind sinning in that way, basically was forfeiting the world system over to the devil's spiritual influence. Jesus himself acknowledged that repeatedly, John chapter 12, chapter 14, chapter 16, Jesus calls the devil the ruler of this world, that is of this present world system of humanity who has rebelled against God. There is a spiritual ruler over this world system influencing its course. Ephesians 2 says the devil is directing the course of this world, and those in the world are obeying him as their unseen commander. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul there says that the devil is the god of this present evil age who has blinded the minds of those who do not believe. It is important to understand, folks, this is the reason for the world's corrupt and corrupting condition. To recognize that is why it keeps deteriorating morally and spiritually. There is an unseen spiritual dictator who is influencing the minds of all unsaved people who are not children of God who don't have the Spirit of God working inside of them as you and I do by the grace of God having become children of God. The devil is perversely directing the ways that humanity thinks. Their ideals and their ideas, their views, their desires, their attitudes towards things. He is controlling the affairs of society. He is causing corruption in the culture. He is seeking to bring about chaos among humanity because the world, the Bible says, is under the sway of the wicked one. It's under the direction and the influence of the devil. And that is the reason wicked and immoral things and ideas are proposed among mankind. That is the very reason behind it. It is actually not men's ideas it's the devil's ideas. 
being propagated in the minds of men. The devil influencing perspectives of humanity, putting ideals and ideas into their mind, and the underlying cause for why evil is promoted in our world and why it is prospering and being embraced and implemented is because the devil is the unseen, invisible world dictator in his tyranny, trying to devour humanity, trying to rob, kill, and destroy everything that is good and moral and godly that a loving God wants for humanity that he created. And it is the devil working in this way, controlling the patterns of this world, and it's his diabolical influence. And look, why is this so important, and why is this empowering for us as God's people? Because it is essential that we recognize and continue to remember the issue in society is spiritual. The issue in society is spiritual. There is a spiritual plague that is the primary problem in the culture and in the world. So therefore, the right solution is spiritual. It's not political. We're not going to elect someone to fix the corrupting problems in this world. The problem is the plague of the devil influencing things in the culture and men living in darkness and deception because they don't know God. The deepest need in society and culture is spiritual, and it's not going to be solved politically. I'm not saying we should not do our best to elect people who have moral ideas and some degree of righteousness in their fiber work of how they operate. Certainly, I, I want all the help I can get. Uh, give me as much parameters as possible and freedom to worship the Lord. But look, that's not the solution. It's not a political solution to a spiritual problem. And there are many in the church who I, I, I'm starting to fear are becoming more American than Christian. And look, I, the older I get, the more I want to be a patriot. I love our nation, and, and I, I have a great respect for everything that's a part of what we enjoy in this American society. But I am first and foremost a citizen of heaven, not a patriot of the United States of America. And we are defiling the world in some ways faster than other places in the world. So I have to wonder what God's view is towards our nation and the things that we do and we promote and we propagate because the devil is working hard out there in the world and in our country like everywhere else in the world. But the solution is not political. It is spiritual. And the solution is not medical, nor is it medication. And we are the most medicated nation on this planet. It's not medication. It's not medical solutions, nor is it implementing social programs and social justice. You know, I just drove by a, 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 a worship uh, location yesterday on my way en route to one of the funerals I went to yesterday and, and driving by, big sign out front, gun violence. I have no problem if you have an issue with gun violence. Why don't you put something about no Jesus or why, why are we putting that out in front of a church? Because we're beginning to believe if we just get social programs going. So this social justice movement and that and this and teach our kids that. and We're not doing anything of value unless we're approaching a spiritual problem with a spiritual antidote. Praying 
seeking God, asking God to move by the power of his spirit, preaching the gospel, teaching the word of God, letting the church be what the Bible says the church is supposed to be. First Timothy says, we're the pillar and the ground of truth. That's what we are. We are that in the world that is supposed to hold the line of what is true and to recognize that the problem is spiritual and our calling is to live set apart from the world, the Bible teaches. That's why John no doubt says here in the midst of saying the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one, but look what he says, verse 19. But we, who's we? Those of us who are born of God. He's, we are of, of God. In other words, John's trying to draw a strong distinction there saying, look, we're now citizens of heaven. We're here on foreign soil. We're just ambassadors here for a time. We're on foreign soil in a foreign place spiritually on this earth still, but we are of God. We're called out. That's why we have to understand too, and Jesus emphasized, that's why at times there's so much animosity towards us as Christians and towards those who want to be Bible-believing people or conservative individuals. Jesus said this in John 15, if the world, what we're talking about, who's under the sway of the wicked one. If the world hates you, know and remember it hated me first. The world would love you as one of its own if you belong to it, but you are no longer part of the world. Jesus said that. I chose you to come out of the world. And he said, that's why the world hates you. So we have to recognize there's gonna be a degree of animosity. We can't just continually be people pleasers and want to pacify all the standards and ideas of the world. That is not the calling of the church. Oh, well, the world's doing this now. The world's changing that. The world's redefining marriage. The world's saying this about gender. No. We're supposed to be the ones saying, even if you hate us, this is what's right. And because we love human beings, this is what's right. And we'll stand on God's side. And if you come after us, you're going to have to go through the Father, and you're going to have to go through my big brother Jesus who's standing behind me. But we're to recognize there's going to be that animosity and not let that be something that pressures us into a corner where we then become pacifying everybody with ridiculous, corrupt, horrible ideas. Because listen, to some degree, folks, when we do that as the church, what we're basically doing is we're giving the devil his way. It's not a flesh and blood resistance. There's a diabolical agenda. The devil is operating in the world, and we're to stand against the devil to do what we can to uphold what is true. Jesus spoke of how we're to live set apart. That we're, Remember, Paul said not to conform to the pattern of the world. We're not to conform. In John chapter 17, Jesus, recognizing these same realities as he was praying to his father, said, Father, I've given them your word, and the world has hated them because they're not of the world just as I'm not of the world. I don't pray that you should take them out of the world. Hopefully soon, though, Lord. Don't leave us here forever. I don't pray you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them, preserve them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is the truth. And then Jesus said this, as you sent me into the world, I have also sent them into the world. So Jesus says, my father and I chose you out of the system of the world to make you our children, and now we have empowered you with the word of God and the spirit of God to now be sent back into the world as ambassadors. What did Jesus say we're supposed to be as Christians? The salt of the earth. Salt is a preserving influence. It wasn't the ancient culture. It was a healing influence. 
And he says, we're also to be the light of the world. And folks, our world desperately needs such in these dark days. Desperately. That we would be spiritual above all else. John says in verse 20 regarding what God has done, and much of this we've seen already, but he comes back to it as he concludes, and we know that the Son of God, Jesus, has come and given us an understanding that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, and in his Son, Jesus Christ, John wants to make it clear, this is the true God and eternal life. John here restates numerous truths and principles in almost a summary statement of what he's been talking about in this letter, that God has allowed us to come to know the truth about who Jesus is and why Jesus came to this earth. Notice he says in verse 20 that Jesus, the eternal son of God, has come into this world, and John says here he came to give us an understanding. An understanding of what? Who God is. Jesus came to give us an understanding who God truly is. Jesus was God living in human flesh, dwelling among us. He was the image of the invisible God. He was the God-man, God who became man, took a second nature, a human nature, and a body of flesh that he might clearly show us the nature of God, that we might know what God is really like, and that we might know what God is not like. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father in heaven. Look, why is that so important to know that Jesus came to give us an understanding of who God is? Because you know as well as I do, sadly, too many people want to create their own concept of what God is like. So they have a concept of God, but it's according to what they've heard about God, or it's according to what they think God should be like, or it's according to perhaps how they prefer God would be like, rather than what is God really like. And Jesus came to show us what God truly is like. And we don't ever want to be in that mistaken place or allow others in deception to create a God according to their own understanding, a God who accommodate this preference because that's their preference. So he's a God according to my image and my likeness who is willing to approve or allow or condone this. No, who is God truly? What is God really like? Jesus is the only clear indication, gives us understanding. He says that we might know what he is like, that we may, verse 20, that we may come to know him who is true, that we truly come to know God in a real experience, in a genuine way, because we know God, how? Through Jesus. He says here of us who are believers, that we may know him who is true, and we are in him, the idea is in relationship with him, and in relationship with his son, Jesus Christ. The only true way to know God, the Bible teaches, is to know Jesus, because he was God, living among us, revealing God to us, giving the way to enter into relationship with God. Look what John says, the end of verse 20, regarding the person of God's son, Jesus. He says, this is, referring to Jesus Christ, this is the true God and eternal life. Jesus himself, when he was about to die upon the cross, made a very exclusive statement again in his prayer to his father. John 13, Jesus said this, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you as you've given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life 
to as many as you have given him. Where do you receive eternal life? John told us it's from Jesus giving eternal life. He's the only one that can give it. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So again, truth is essential. It's empowering. It may seem exclusive from a human perspective, but from God's divine standpoint, it's all dependent on one thing, knowing Jesus, knowing the true God who came to offer salvation. And we live in a world, folks, where to speak the truth is no longer permitted anymore from some people's perspective. And anybody who wants to speak the truth or anything that's contrary to what the world's ideals are, the direction the world wants to go, doesn't want to have any degree of toleration, and we have to have courage, boldness from the Holy Spirit. I'm not saying we should be weird or mean or confrontational or nasty. That's not the case. But that we should have enough backbone spiritually to say, I don't agree with that, and this is America. And freedom means you have freedom to believe and do what you want. You, you have freedom to do that. And I can't stop you. This is America. But I also have freedom to say I believe the Bible. And I'm not a bigot or a homophobe or wrong. And quite honestly, most people in the country believe this for a lot longer until you came up with all those corrupt and defiling and destructive ideas. And so whether it is the filth of this or trying to groom our children with perversity in kindergarten and first grade when they need to be learning about reading and writing and arithmetic and now we want to perversely tell them things that there's no business talking about to a five-year-old. To say, I don't agree with that. I, I don't. This is what the truth is and, and I'm allowed to believe the truth. And that we would have the courage to speak the truth all the way to the way of not being ashamed or to say, and the Bible says, God says, the only way to get to heaven is through Jesus. And to not be intimidated or to think we're wrong to say such things when God himself declares it. Well, the age of John gives us one final exhortation in love. Caring about our spiritual health, he says, little children, my dear ones, keep yourselves from idols, amen, or let it be so. So he concludes, notice, warning us against the danger of idolatry. Keep yourself, he says, from idols. An idol is any person or anything that takes the place of God's first importance in our lives. That's what an idol is. It's when anything replaces the Lord in your life. It's when anyone replaces the Lord's importance or role in your life. An idol is that which receives the most attention and devotion. It's what we give our most time to. It's what all our, you know, our dedication and investment is in. It's where our highest allegiance is. You can tell what you worship by looking what your highest allegiance is to, what your greatest interest is, what your foremost investment is, and your top priority. That is what we worship, and that is also what can become an idol. And look, this is important. When John says, little children, keep yourselves from idols, we're very naive to think what he's saying is, look, don't put those little metal statues on your thing, or, or I hope you don't have a bobblehead of some saint in your car. That's not what John's talking. He's talking about idols. Anything that replaces God's role, that's our foremost important. Idols can come in many forms. 
Little children, keep yourself from idols, plural. John knows there's many things that can become idols. Certainly evil and corrupt things can become idols, but even good things and okay things can become just way too important in my life. Or we have way too much allegiance to them and commitment to them, and they become more important than God. So can a sinful indulgence we constantly serve be an idol? Yes. Can pornography be an idol? Yes. Can alcohol and drugs be an idol? Yes. Can any form of sin be an idol? Absolutely. But some idea that you cling to so strongly, and, and, and it drives you in your being, that idea that you cling to, that can become an idol in your life. It could be something is what drives you and what your whole existence is about. It could be a person or a relationship that can become an idol in our life. I've raised three children into adulthood. Your child or your children can become an idol in your life when they become more important than God does or they become more important than pleasing God and instead pleasing and pacifying them. Our children good things, but our children even can become an idol. A material thing can become an idol. Money and wealth can easily become an idol. Something we do routinely can become an idol. Some habit that we engage in, maybe some hobby, maybe some recreational activity, and it is, it is all about that recreational activity. That can become an idol. Something that is way more important in your life than God is that thing in your life. It could be some pursuit, even our work. I can tell you candidly, ministry can become an idol. Anything that we begin to give more devotion and attention to than God himself can become an idol. And we are all made to worship something, but we have to control, the Bible says, what it is we worship. We were created to be worshipers. But our responsibility is to keep ourselves worshiping God and not worshiping and being overly devoted to other things as replacements for God. And we're all prone to it. You read throughout the Old Testament, Jeremiah and, and, and the New Testament, numerous times. Paul in Acts 17 went into the city and he said that he saw the city was given over to idols, all types of different things that people were worshiping. And as God's children, we have to know our foremost devotion belongs to God. So John says, little children... Keep yourselves from idols. Don't let it happen in your life. We have a responsibility to monitor this and even to identify it. Ezekiel 14 says, these men have set up idols in their hearts. And that's what happens. Our heart becomes too devoted to something. Look, this morning, by way of application, can I say to you, as we conclude John's book together, is it possible something in your life has become idolatrous. Is that possible? That something in your life has become idolatrous. It's important to know how unhealthy idols are to God's people. And I'll tell you why. Because first and foremost, they displease God. Because it's basically conveying to God, this thing on the earth is more important than you. This is more important than you, God. That breaks the Father's heart. That dishonors God when we make something, anything more important than God. And it will also interfere with our relationship with the Lord 
being healthy. Psalm 106 says this, they served their idols, which became a snare to them. Idolatry led to their downfall in their spiritual health and relationship. What does the Bible tell us to do with an idol? Dethrone it. You dethrone the idol and you re-enthrone the Lord in your heart so that you can continue to have a healthy relationship with him. So stay on guard. He says, little children, keep yourselves from idols. And everyone said, let's stand together. Let's